We'll be reading from Isaiah chapter 7, verses 8 through 24. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when, Aaron's, when Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw down his staff in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers, and the Egyptian musicians also did the same thing by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff, and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the river. Confront him on the bank of the Nile and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. And then say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die, and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and canals, over the ponds and all the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in vessels of wood and stone. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials, and he struck the water of the Nile, and all the water was changed to blood. The fish in the Nile died. The river smelled so bad the Egyptians could not drink its water, and blood was everywhere in Egypt. But the Egyptian musicians, Magicians did the same thing by their secret arts, and Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went into his palace and did not even take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water because they could not drink the water of the river. Okay, good morning to everyone. Last Monday, I was driving through Columbiana, and I saw, <clears throat> excuse me, I saw a yard sign that said, he is risen. And I thought to myself, you can't say that yet. Uh, the temperature was, if you remember, it was like 20 degrees. Snow was blowing across my windshield. I hadn't had coffee that day. I knew it was Lent. I knew it was not Easter Sunday. And so I went down and I took down that sign. I didn't do that. I didn't do that. I wa <laughs> but I was a little frustrated because as much as I wanted to leapfrog over the darkness of Lent and into the joy and triumph of Easter, I knew we were not there yet. I knew we had farther to go. Right now, we as a congregation, we're moving towards the two most spectacular uh, events of salvation in the Bible, Easter 
and Exodus. Exodus is the, the rescue of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, and Easter is the rescue of God by God of the entire world through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Which I think is really neat, actually, that these have lined up together because it helps us to see the parallels and connections between, between these two stories. As I've been trying to tell you, Exodus helps us understand Easter. Okay? They are part of the same big story. And actually, interestingly enough, uh, this doesn't always happen. This happens, I think, every seven years. Passover actually is on Good Friday this year. So they line up together. And there is an, there's a light at the end of each of these stories, at the end of this Lenten journey to the cross, and at the end of this enslavement in Egypt, but we're not there yet. And what we see in both these stories is time and time again, judgment acts as a kind of signal that redemption is near, that rescue is near. So we see the, again and again in the Bible, we see these two things in proximity, judgment and redemption. And so we have this, we have this dark stretch ahead, ahead of us, but I want you to hang with me because redemption is near. So I... I, this might not be a surprise, but I didn't grow up boxing. <laughs> I didn't even grow up watching boxing. Like, there's no way my parents were going to, like, pay, like, pay-per-view to watch the big fights when I was growing up. But I did play a fair bit of Mike Tyson's Punch-Out on Nintendo. Anybody know Mike Tyson's Punch-Out? Yeah, nobody. <laughs> nobody. <laughs> well, okay, here. You, you don't have to play Mike Tyson. Imagine Nintendo, and, 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 and you get to be Little Mac, and Mike Tyson's Punch-Out. And little Mac is this, this scrawny little 17-year-old boxer who weighs in at 107 pounds. And poor little Mac in the game, he's totally outmatched by, outmatched by his opponents. Like physically on your, on your screen, little Mac is just this little guy, and then there's all these huge boxers uh, that just tower over him. King Hippo, Mr. Sandman, Soda Popinski. <laughs> my favorite. And they had, these, they had these special moves that were amazing. And poor little Mac, all, he had like a couple jabs. He could throw an uppercut once in a while, but he was just totally overmatched in this fight. And I thought a little Mac this week because the, because the image that kept popping up in my head as I worked through this passage was this boxing match between Yahweh and Pharaoh. So we typically... We typically talk about this as the plagues of Egypt, and that's, that's good, that's understandable. But what a number of scholars have pointed out is maybe plague is not actually in the text here. That's not a word that the Bible uses. Uh, there's several words in Hebrew that are used, and, and maybe the best translation is blow than plagues. So we've seen this. We've been building up to this fight for weeks now. Yahweh, through, through Moses, he's made it clear to Pharaoh that that he's not going to stand for this enslavement in, that Pharaoh's doing to his people. And if you remember, Pharaoh's response to this, when Moses first comes to him, is, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? Who's this, who is this Yahweh to tell me what to do? I, I'm not afraid of no Yahweh. And today we move from this kind of pre-fight, this hype, this trash talking that Pharaoh's done, we move into the ring. And Pharaoh will now meet face-to-face the God of the Hebrews and learn the answer to the question, who is the Lord? And poor Pharaoh, he, he looks like little Mac. Poor Pharaoh, he looks like he's just way over his head in the story. He's overmatched, and he takes blow after blow after blow in this 10-round brawl with Yahweh, which might, let's, let's be honest, maybe some of us, that makes us a little bit uncomfortable. 
Maybe the violence, maybe the, the destructive, maybe there's, the, the, there's collateral damage that happens in the story, and that's understandable. But, but I want to at least keep, keep a couple things in mind. One, this is not a fight between Israel and Egypt, okay? The battle, the fight in the ring here is between Pharaoh and Yahweh. So, Pharaoh, so Yahweh, he wages this uh, battle, this fight on behalf of the Israelites, but the, but the Israelites are just ringside spectators, okay? This is not their fight. They're not the ones throwing the punches. But also, too, remember that this attack by Yahweh is in response to the cruel and brutal exploitation of an enslaved, oppressed immigrant minority in Egypt, okay? So there's so much, you know, understandably, there's so much distance between us and this text, this story on the ancient Near East, that it's, it's hard for that to sink in as we're reading it. It's hard for us to kind of feel viscerally this brutality that's happening in Egypt. But, like, you can look around at other places in the world now. In particular, uh, we're thinking about Ukraine right now. And you, you see what's happening, and you just you can feel it more. And that's what you need to feel. That that's what Yahweh is responding to, but even, you know, worse. Yahweh is responding to evil that's happening in Egypt. And, and also, Yahweh gives Pharaoh many chances to do the right thing. But ultimately, here's what we'll see again and again in the Bible— Nothing will stop Yahweh from advancing his purposes. So there's one other thing that might make us a little bit uncomfortable if you've read this whole passage, and it almost always sticks out to us, and that's that we read later on in, in this, the big story of the plagues that God hardens Pharaoh's hearts. Anybody ever read that and been like, that really bothers me? Yeah, you're not alone. Almost everyone comes to that and is a little bit concerned because it sounds like Pharaoh's like this puppet, right, that... God is just kind of manipulating in this fight that even if Pharaoh wanted to do something differently, his choice has already been made. But one thing to notice, and if you go back and you kind of read it, actually you would have read it just not long ago if you're in the, the Bible plan for Midway, but, but we have ten times where we read that Pharaoh's heart is hardened. But seven of those times, we read that Pharaoh is the one that's hardening his heart, or we just read that his heart is hard. So let me just say, like, I, there's a mystery here that happens that I'm not going to try to explain, nor do I think we really should try to explain. There's this mystery of how does Pharaoh's free will, how does that interact with God's sovereignty? And I don't, I don't fully understand that. I don't think we, any of us do. But we at least need to see that the hardening of Pharaoh's heart comes after time and time again, Yahweh has given him a chance. Time and, you know, at, at one point in the plagues, Pharaoh even admits that he's wrong. He, he confesses his sin, but then he continues to choose again and again the same devastating path. Okay, so we're covering a big block of text. As Ellen said, we're not going to be able to, to see, look at each of these plagues individually or these blows, but I want you to see a couple, like some patterns here. There's some variation, but this is the kind of general pattern we see again and again in the plagues. So, so Yahweh's going to send Moses to, to Pharaoh, and he's going to tell him that, that Pharaoh needs to let the people go, or there's going to be this consequence. There's going to be this, this blow, this plague that's going to strike Pharaoh in Egypt. And then Pharaoh doesn't listen. This, the plague does, in fact, happen. Uh, Pharaoh seems to have this change of heart. He, he backtracks, and he, and he, says, or he says that he'll, yes, we can let the people go, but then he changes his mind and refuses to let them go. So that's the basic pattern that we see again and again. Uh, here's the, Ron, can you put up that list? You, you probably learned these as a kid, many of you, but here's the list of plagues uh, that we go through. We go, there's 10 of them total, and we'll leave the, next, the last one for next week. Blood, 
frogs, gnats, flies, livestock, boils, hail, locusts, and darkness. So, um, just look at that list for a second. Is there anything that like sticks out that might kind of be a commonality between all these things? Gnats, locusts, darkness. These are all creation. These are all, uh, these are all natural in a sense. So there's, think about it. There's lots of ways that Yahweh could have brought judgment upon Pharaoh and forced the Israelites to, to him to release the Israelites. He could have used uh, swords. Yahweh could have used chariots. Yahweh could have used armies. I think we can all assume that those would have been at Yahweh's disposal. But instead, Yahweh brings judgment upon Pharaoh with uh, weapons of creation, frogs and flies and hail and locusts and darkness. And the image we get in this story is of creation gone haywire. Creation has gone berserk in this passage. So take, for example, the first plague. We got the, the, the Ellen Reds, the changing of water into blood. Water is, of course, a source of life. Like, none of us can, can survive without water. Water is also this habitat for all these living creatures. And in the book of Genesis, uh, when we read the, the creation account, God says, let the water teem with living creatures. Okay, so in, in the beginning, we see God just filling up the waters with life. But now, rather than, than teeming with life, we've got the Nile is teeming with death, right? These fish have all died. Growing up, I, my, I'd go up a lot of times summers to Minnesota. My grandpa had a, had a trailer at a, a lake in Minnesota. And if it was a good day for, for my grandpa and for us, we would bring back a whole basket full of sunfish. And he would sit in the fish house, it's amazing, and cut fillets off every one of those sunfish. If you've ever cleaned a sunfish, you know that's a lot of, of work for just a little fillet. But he'd sit there with all those sunfish and clean them. But my memory as a kid was all those fish would just, his entrails for the couple days would just build up in this fish house and the place just stank, right? This, this source of life this, that was so important to the Egyptians, this Nile that gave life, that provided life, that provided fish, had now become this big, stinky, bloody river of death. The second plague is the plague of frogs. Frogs again, frogs are a good thing. They're part of creation. Frogs are fun to watch at the pond. You can, like, have races with them. You can batter up their legs and fry them up and eat them. You can do all kinds of things with frogs. Frogs are good if they stay where they're supposed to be. But, but here in this plague, we see frogs moving out of their natural boundaries. They're, they're moving out of the, the Nile, and they're going into people's beds, and they're going into ovens, and they're going into kneading troughs. In other words, they're crossing their natural boundaries. They're invading human habitation, and, and in, ter in turn, this creates chaos in Egypt. Creation is out of whack. It's gone berserk. Uh, the next plague is the plague of gnats. So gnats, uh, they, we read that they emerge from the dust. And, and now go back to, again with me to the Genesis account. We read there that humans were created out of dust. But now in Exodus, we have gnats being created out of dust. And it's interesting because the, the first couple plagues, Pharaoh's magicians can kind of keep up with, with Yahweh. So Yahweh turns the water to blood. The, the magicians turn the water to blood. Yahweh makes frogs come up. The magicians make frogs come up. Which is funny because you would think that they would like make them stop, but instead they just add to the problem of more frogs and more blood, which is kind of funny. But 
But these gnats are too much for the magicians. They cannot produce gnats. And, and, and we get these gnats, we read, they're kind of crawling all over people and animals, and the magicians have just had enough. And they cry out, this is the finger of God. It's not exactly clear in the Hebrew what gnats are, but, but it seems to be like uh, the biting variety. And what comes to my mind is a combination of lice, ticks, and bedbugs. Yeah, <laughs> gasp. Think about that, the combination of those things crawling on you and biting you. Um, so last summer we were on sabbatical, and I got my family in maybe some somewhat scary situations like up in the mountains climbing. But I think if you ask Krishana, she would probably tell you the scariest situation I ever got my family into was the cheap motel I got in Colorado Springs. She was, she was convinced from when she walked in that the whole room was full of bed bugs. And so I, like, I was, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to ease your mind. I invited the, the, the motel owner. I asked him, I said, hey, like, can you give some assurance there's no bed bugs? And his only response is, I've only owned this motel a week. And that was a problem, but not now. Not a helpful response at all. Uh, and, and even the thought of spending the night in that, that motel that night, there was no bed bugs, don't, don't worry. But just the thought of those bed bugs were just like, I think, didn't get a good night's sleep that night. It's not pleasant. Then the hail begins to come down. And, and in Genesis, again, go back to Genesis, we read uh, that the land produces vegetation. Now, though, in Egypt... The, the flax and the barley and the trees, they're all just getting knocked down and stripped and pummeled by this hail. So now creation, uh, we've seen that Yahweh is using creation to pronounce judgment on Egypt uh, and Pharaoh to inflict these blows. But now we even see creation is caught up in this struggle. Creation is getting damaged by uh, this struggle that's happening between Pharaoh and God. It's both, uh, it's both the cause and the victim of this struggle. And what we see is this kind of, we see this kind of decreation account. So if Genesis is the creation account, Exodus is kind of the decreation account. It's the creation story in reverse. And so rather than, than humans coming from the dust, we have these uh, gnats that come from the dust and attack the humans. Rather than fish and livestock flourishing, they're being destroyed. Uh, and, and this reversal is most clearly seen in the second to last plague, the plague of darkness. For three days, we read that darkness spreads over the land of Egypt. So darkness that can be felt. I think I don't know exactly what that means to feel darkness, but like it can't be good. Darkness that, that seems to that penetrates your bones. And light, of course, was the very first thing that God spoke at, into existence at creation. And so now we have Egypt returning to this kind of chaotic pre-creation world that was, that was described as formless and empty and darkness in the surface of the deep. So darkness represented the chaos that was present in the world before God brought that into order by introducing light. Now all of a sudden, Egypt's plunged into that darkness. They're taken back to the chaos before the order. Imagine for a second if you woke up this morning and you realized the sun hadn't risen, which actually this morning kind of felt that way because I'm like, are you kidding me? It's snowing. But not like this kind of dark, this dreary northeast Ohio kind of uh, darkness, but like it's pitch black at 8 a.m. I mean, I think all of us would recognize this complete chaos has come to our world. It would feel like the end of the world. It would feel like creation is completely out of whack. Creation has gone berserk. And through it all, somehow, Pharaoh hangs on, kind of barely. He's, he's little Mac. He's outmatched, but I gotta say, he's a scrappy little guy. 
Like, he's stubborn as all get out. Like, he should have thrown in the towel long ago, but now at this point in our story, Pharaoh has withstood nine blows from, uh, from Yahweh. The knockout punch is coming. It hasn't landed yet, but Pharaoh is certainly on the ropes. And everyone around him, everyone around him seems to know it. His officials, the magicians, they, they should, if they could, they would stop the fight. They would throw in the towel, but Pharaoh refuses. Because Pharaoh has asked the question, who is the Lord? Who is this provincial God of yours that I should obey him? And now Pharaoh has his answer. Okay? The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, is the one who fights with weapons that are only at his disposal. The Lord is the one who draws from his quiver, not arrows, not chariots, not swords, not armies, but creation itself. Lightning, locusts, darkness. We have never seen this before. Now, little Mac, do you not realize who you're up against? You are out of your league. You have picked the wrong fight with the wrong person. And so our story in Exodus has taken a dark turn. This, this judgment from God is through creation is raining down on Pharaoh in Egypt, blow after blow after blow. We have been plunged into darkness. Which signals redemption must be near. At the beginning of this preaching series on Exodus, I I compared the, the story of Exodus to, in the Bible to Ode to Joy and Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. And, and the melody, in particular the melody in Ode to Joy, it, it, in that piece it keeps resurfacing again and again and again. And, and Ode to Joy brings, those, that melody brings that piece together by that recurrence. And I was saying that in the story of Exodus, it's, Exodus is like the melody in the Bible that just keeps resurfacing again and again and again. It, it's a theme that just keeps coming up again and again. And so once you have Exodus in your mind, once you have the melody of Exodus in your mind, once you have those notes, you should start seeing them pop up again and again as they resurface in the biblical story. So let's think about where now, we've got these plagues, kind of weird, pretty weird stuff. Are these going to show up again in the biblical story, this creation gone haywire and judgment? Well, we reach back to the beginning of the story. Let's go to the very end of the biblical story to the book of Revelation. And there we have this picture in chapters 8 and 9 of judgment being rained down again upon earth in the form of creation. There's these seven angels who blow seven trumpets. So the first angel sounds a trumpet, hail and fire mixed with blood are hurled on the earth. The second angel then sounds his trumpet and the sea turns into blood. The fourth angel sounds a trumpet and the, the sun is struck, creating darkness. And then we read that locusts come again. But these are like terrifying locusts that are have the power of scorpions and look like horses. So does this sound familiar? Hail, water turning to blood, darkness, locusts. In, in Revelation, we see a kind of replaying of the plagues in Egypt. And again, in Revelation, just like Exodus, we have this picture of creation gone haywire. We have a picture of creation being used by God as a source of judgment. And again, though, we see this pattern. We have this, we have this judgment in Revelation, followed by redemption, judgment and, and redemption in close proximity. There's darkness and judgment, but that's a signal that redemption is coming. What is redemption in Revelation? Well, in Revelation, the world, the world is not destroyed, as unfortunately we, we often talk about it as, as if it is. No, in Revelation, the world is restored. The earth is renewed. Creation is redeemed. There's a new heaven and a new earth. Judgment and redemption and revelation are in close proximity. Darkness and light, just like in the story of Exodus. But that's not the only place we see this melody resurfacing. 
Because when Jesus comes to earth, a star points the magi to the newly born king. So we have, again, creation bearing witness to Jesus. When Jesus grows up, creation will not just bear witness to him, but Jesus will actually have control over creation, just like Yahweh. Jesus will calm a raging storm. He will turn water not to blood, but to wine at a wedding. And I'm hoping as we move through Exodus, you're beginning, you're hopefully seeing this continuity between Yahweh of the Old Testament and Yahweh in the embodied form of Jesus in the New Testament. Because again and again, we, we hear this melody of Exodus resurfacing in the New Testament in the Bible. In particular, think about this. At the cross, where we'll be here in just a couple weeks, remember what happens in the lead-up to Jesus' death. The earth is again plunged into darkness. How long? Okay, Egypt, darkness comes for three days. Perhaps not coincidentally at Golgotha, as Jesus hangs on the cross, how long does darkness fall over the land? Three hours. So again, we have this moment of judgment at the cross. We have creation gone haywire. We have the sun that ceased to shine. But again, like Revelation, like Exodus, judgment and darkness signal to us redemption is near. Because three days later, Jesus walks out of the tomb and is resurrected and restored body. Jesus is the, the first fruits of the new creation. So again, we see the exodus resurfacing in the New Testament. We see, we see a God who is in control of creation in the Old Testament. We see a God who is in control of creation in the New Testament. We see a God who uses creation as an instrument of judgment in the Old Testament, same as the New Testament. We see a God who, who delivers mighty blows in the Old Testament. We see the same thing in the, the New Testament. But this time, it's not Pharaoh. The blows are delivered on the cross to the powers and principalities, the ultimate anti-human forces of sin and death and the devil. As Paul in Colossians will say, uh, he makes a public spectacle of them, triumphing, triumphing over them by the cross. So we again have this picture uh, at, the, at, at Jesus' death and resurrection of all these, these powers and principalities and the devil and the sin and death all coming at Jesus, and they're all like little Macs. They're all completely outmatched by Jesus and his power. So what do we do with these plagues? I think our tendency, and I will say I'm the first one with this tendency, our tendency when we come to the Bible is to ask the question, what does this have to do with me? What does this have to say to me? What does this mean to me for my day-to-day -day life? And that is a very reasonable and understandable. But I think what, what can happen, particularly with a story like this, is we miss that the story like this is not primarily about us, it is primarily about God. So go back to me to Pharaoh's question, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? When God sends Moses to Pharaoh to tell him what is about to happen, God tells Pharaoh that by this, by what I'm about to do, you will know that I am the Lord. You want to know what I'm like, Pharaoh? I'm going to show you. This is what I'm like. And the story of the plagues, we, we, we read... Um, we read that there's these signs and wonders that aren't just for Pharaoh, but that they're for the Israelites too. That they're going to tell their grandchildren and their children about these plagues so that they know who the Lord is. So the primary purpose of the plagues in Exodus is not to tell us how to live, but is to tell us who God is. So who is the Lord? Well, according to our story, the Lord is the supreme judge of the universe who has all of creation at his disposal to do his bidding. Let me just say that again. Try to let this sink in, okay? Who is Yahweh? Yahweh has all of creation at his disposal to do his bidding. 
that's who the Lord is. Is that who the Lord is to you? See, I think in our country, actually, there's, there's very few people that would profess to be atheists, something like 3 or 4%. There's not much of a question about, is there a God, at least in our country. The question is, who is the Lord that I should obey him? Why should I submit the authority of my life to this God in the Bible? Why should I listen to this God? And the answer, according to the Bible, is because this God is the one to whom all of creation is at his disposal to do his bidding. Just think of all the people uh, that all of us listen to day after day in our lives. Think of all uh, uh, the experts we listen to. Think of all the life coaches that are so prevalent nowadays. Think of all the social media influencers. Think about the podcasters. Think about the news talking heads. Think about the voices that we listen to every day, much more probably than the voice of God. Whose voices are we constantly ingesting, who shape our imaginations and shape our beliefs, and that if we, we might not recognize it, but we're so quick to obey them? Do any of these voices have the creation at their disposal to do their bidding? Some of them might think they do, but they don't. They are little max compared to Yahweh. And yet we are so often in awe of them. We're so often eager to listen to these voices on our televisions and on our podcasts and on our social media feeds. Do we actually believe that the God that we read about in the Bible has this kind of power? Are we in awe of it? Or have we heard these stories so many times they just bounce off us? Are we so interested in trying to figure out what this story has to say to me in my life that we miss what it has to say about God? Yes, right behavior matters, but our right behavior flows out of a right understanding of who God is, and that understanding of God must include awe. We are a part of, I love this part of our, our faith, but we're part of a stream of faith, a stream of faith that has traditionally put a lot of emphasis on doing, on action. Lots of good to that, but it can create a blind spot in us. Because sometimes we, as Mennonites, just need to stop doing it. And we just need to sit in awe of God. We need to reflect on what a mighty God we serve. Just last week, this last week, I was studying a passage in the Gospel of John with my daughter, Neva, and we're reading the story of, of Jesus walking on water. And like I often do, I'm rooting around this story, trying to figure out how do we apply this to our lives, Neva? How do we figure out what to do with this? And Neva just kind of stops and she says, this is amazing that Jesus walks on water. That's the proper first response to the story. It's not, what should I do with this? It is, look at Jesus. He's walking on water. This is why you parents out there, study Scripture with your kids. Study Scripture with your kids so that you can open up their eyes to who the Lord is and so that they can open up your eyes to who the Lord is. What a mighty God we serve. Who else can do this? Who else has creation at their bidding? Who else turns the water to blood and the water to wine? Who is powerful enough to rescue, to redeem, to liberate, not just us, but all of creation? Because all of creation is groaning right now. All of creation is going haywire right now. We are in a state of ecological collapse. We need a big God. We need a God who not only has the power to save souls and individuals, but who has the power to redeem the world. What a mighty God we serve. Thanks be to God.